All right, so the mic is now hot. You are being recorded. All right, everybody, this is David Ivey with Funding the Jump once again. Today, I'll be interviewing Milo Finnegan Money about his life and just what's going on for him, all right? All right, so Milo, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good. What's, you know, your basic parkour origin story and all that jazz? And then what are you up to nowadays? Um, Basic parkour origin story? Um... I discovered parkour when I was like 14. Um, I was actually on a trip to India when I first heard about it from a kid from Chicago. Kind of weird, right? That is very strange. Yeah. And um, I was at an ashram there. And the first time I ever trained was at that ashram. I tried to do this like climbing challenge. Um, And uh, I have a very distinct memory of it. I remember being like, this is really cool. I really like this. Um, And then when I came back to New York... I googled parkour in New York and a forum came up and I uh, got an account and then uh, two days later I accidentally bumped into them training on the street. Dude, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird. What were you doing in an ashram in India? Uh, my parents are uh, were part of a sort of spiritual practice that had its origins in India and we went there for a summer right between middle school and high school. Uh, that's the best time. That's around the time that I started doing parkour too. And what was parkour in New York like back in the day? What what were, what year was this? Uh, it would have been 2007. Yeah. We're the same age. Yeah. In terms of all that stuff. I think that's awesome. And so you trained from 2007 for a while, and then at some point you got injured, right? Yeah. So I started training in 2007, and then maybe 2013 I got injured. Um, but the injury that I sustained, which was to my ankle, was sort of a repeated injury that I kept sustaining um, at different periods in time. I definitely rolled my ankle pretty badly in my first year of training. And then probably again, I probably rolled it like once every year, at least a little bit. Um, So it was like kind of a degenerative injury. And I didn't have great health insurance. I didn't have parents who really understood what I was doing or how to support me or had the money to support me. So I wasn't able to get like any sort of like athletic training or anything like that or go to PT. Those were all things that I didn't really understand or have access to in the way that would have been nice. Um, and so it was more like get injured, wait till you feel better and then sort of start again. Um, and eventually one of those injuries was bad enough that it really did me in. <laughs> one that did you? Yeah. Dude, that's rough. And it was in D.C. that I did it. Really? Yeah, it was at... Oh, yeah, during Beast Coast, right? Yep. Yeah, I remember hearing about this. Was this at Georgetown? Mm-hmm. Dang. I've gone back to look at the jump that I did it on. Yeah? Yeah. Still looks hard to me. <laughs> <laughs> Still not gonna do it. Yeah. All right, and let's see. How did you... What was recovering from your injury like? Like, what, how, what was the process for you? Um, slow. <laughs> it's not an easy process, I think. It was, I think, and it, my injury for me was also twofold. It was a physical injury and simultaneously, like, the onset of uh, more serious, like, clinical anxiety and depression, um, which hit me in my later life, right around, like, 19, later life, hit me around, like, 19, you know, not later life. The time that a lot of people's bipolar disorder and serious depression, serious anxiety started to, like, sort of manifest themselves, and... and because of my injury, I think my mental health deteriorated more than it would have. Um, and I think parkour was a big coping mechanism for me. And so without it, I struggled. Um, 
and I was just a mess. And so trying to get my body under control was basically an impossibility while my mind was still so, I mean, I, I really went off the rails for a period like that. You know, I think I have some friends who thought like I might like never kind of be the same person again. Oh my God. Like, okay. yeah, I, I, and I, for, I thought I might have bipolar too. Like my brain was just whacked out. Like I just felt like fucking nuts. Um, and I'd find myself just doing things that didn't make a lot of sense. Like uh, suddenly like, you know, on a train with my bicycle, like heading out to the woods at like two in the morning and then like sleeping in a like bus depot overnight and then like riding out to the woods like where me and my dad used to go camping and it was like below zero. And like I went out and tried to sleep near this waterfall and like woke up and thought I was going to die because it was so cold and like just crazy, like shit that just didn't really make any sense. Like I don't know what I was trying to do, but clearly like call it out for help. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that. Yeah. So um, I think once I was able to accept or acknowledge that my mental health was as bad as it was I was able to tackle that and then subsequently uh, tackling the the problems that I was having in my body became easier and easier and I became more financially independent more financially stable and that made doing something like getting surgery uh, an actual possibility like it just wasn't a real possibility for a long time because it's so expensive um, and uh, once I was able to do that, I think it really turned it really turned a corner kind of quickly, um, because it wasn't something that I was able to just solve through repetitive PT. I mean, my ankle was just like a mess, and they really needed I really needed like reconstructive surgery. So um, since then, things have been very just increasingly getting better, and my self awareness has also improved a lot through the process. And so, what was that job that sort of helped you? get to the point where you could start actually getting your ankle together and everything? I think the first thing before the job was that, so like when, after I had finished college, my living situation wasn't great. I didn't really have like a home that I could stay in. And while I kind of figured stuff out, I basically got out of college and kind of fell into an apartment and started working. And I was working as a bike messenger. And it wasn't a great situation to be in, I didn't have the support I needed. I needed time was really the issue. I needed time to sort of figure it out a little bit. And so what ended up happening was I kind of cracked at some point and I stole my dad's car and I drove to Portland, Oregon, um, where I have an aunt who has uh, an annex behind her house that I could stay in free of charge. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the biggest sort of most important decision I made was just like getting myself into like a cost-free living situation where... I didn't have the stress of trying to meet any real expenses outside of like food and a phone bill and some student loans. Um, it was like manageable, you know, and I've thought about it more. I think my parents didn't necessarily understand the world that I was getting dropped into um, because they grew up in a world that was a little different. Mm -hmm. um, and it just like wasn't possible to have a part time job and get an apartment like it just it's just like not a real thing anymore. And I think when my mom was young, like that was something she was able to do. And she kind of felt like I needed to like, you know, get thrown out of the nest and figure it out. Um, and I think she didn't necessarily throw me out of the nest, but there was a lot of tension after yeah. it was a messy time in my life. And so I think going to Portland was probably a big decision. It allowed me to save quite a lot of money, um, which I was able to buy some camera equipment with. I'd gone to school for film mm -hmm. and that allowed me to do a little more freelance work, build a very sort of small resume, get comfortable with the equipment. And then I ended up applying for a job in Colorado um, which I ended up getting like three days after I applied. And it was for a 
small uh, political nonprofit. They were looking for someone who could bring sort of uh, a knowledge of film production, content creation into their world um, because a lot of their world is populated with people who are political and then learn skills afterwards. And that's not necessarily going to yield sort of the best looking stuff. Um, So they brought me on and I did some work on the minimum wage campaign um, and kind of nailed nailed it in the first like month and and then I felt very secure in that job like I think I I was able to supply the value that they were looking for really early on and it made me feel like um, an equal in my relationship with my boss and with the company like if I left I was actually taking something that they needed and after a year they gave me like a pretty substantial raise so those things were important I had health care it was like a really good job you know like the kind of thing you really like yeah. hoping you can get, you know? And so in New York, like when you first graduated from college, do you have any student debt? At all? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. still have student debt. Okay. Um, and it's definitely an, like an obstacle that I'm still like trying to figure out, you know, mm-hmm. because a lot of the things I want to do, I feel like I just can't have this like $280 a month expense just hanging around. Um, so yeah, I had like uh, maybe $24,000 of student debt. So not terrible. I was kind of lucky. I got a little scholarship thing for my junior and senior year um, and that was a big help I was stupid and used one year's worth of money to make a movie I never finished so that's like $8,000 down the drain that I never got back I also lived at home during my college which was Uh, another decision I made like I lived on campus freshman year and then I decided that for sophomore year I would commute and my parents separated and my dad kind of ended up moving to like closer to my school and so I thought I could save myself quite a lot of money by just like biting the bullet and doing this like unpleasant hour and a half commute every day. And it, I think it was worth it because it's like the housing is was easily, I went to a state school, so the housing was like the biggest cost, Yeah, you know. That makes sense. So you leave school in New York and you're like sort of floundering, trying to make money. <laughs> it's not working because things have changed. I remember telling my parents like how much rent in Boulder was and they were like, hold up, you get a tiny, tiny, tiny room and that costs like almost a thousand dollars? I'm like, yes. They were like, oh, we had no idea. So I feel like a lot of the older generation doesn't really understand some of the financial pressures that we're faced with. Yeah. But you leave that situation, you go to Portland where you're sort of able to start like creating a foundation of yes. your skills in your portfolio, which then enables you to go out to Colorado and sort of get your career started, right? Yeah. And then what's the next thing that you did after you had made some progress in that position? Um, uh, when I kind of went out to Colorado, I had this intention that like, and part of the reason I even applied for jobs in Colorado is because I knew that the parkour community there was good. And, and when I moved out to Portland, I'd already sort of made this decision in my mind, like, I really want to recover my body from this injury. Like, even if it doesn't mean doing parkour, I just like don't want to be in pain all the time. <laughs> You know, Um, because I felt like an old man a lot of the time, like I would just wake up uncomfortable and like I was kind of scared to do a lot of things like things that you shouldn't be scared of. You know, like I didn't want to like move too quickly. Just running across the street sometimes I'd be like, I hope I don't feel weird after this for like a couple hours, (laughs) you know, so like things were pretty out of whack. And so when I got there, I kind of like took the job as a way to sort of support sort of a stable training regimen because one of the jobs I had before I got there was like a freelance gig where I was like an assistant editor and it was like overnight like I'd come in at 10 p.m and get out at 10 a.m 
And like I was training and feeling better around that time a little bit because I'd been doing quite a lot of PT and that like made it impossible to train. And so I was like, okay, I need something that is like consistent and stable that has a really sort of scheduled foundation that I can use. Like maybe I'll have a little less extra free time than I could if I was freelance, but the free time will be organized in such a way that is easier for me to manage because um, I found things changing every week made it hard for me to like keep a consistent sort of pattern. And I think one of the things about trying to be an athlete is like it is incredibly regimented and like it's hard in life to find a way to have that level of regimentation that's required, you know, to do something at the level that you might be thinking you want to, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that job was key for me in that way, which was that like I went in at nine, I got out at five, basically never worked on a weekend, you know, did a little bit here and there, but like it was really consistent. It was relatively low pressure. I felt good at what I was doing. And so it allowed me to like invest my time and energy um, into my training in my free time. Hmm. Um, and that process was slow. Like I didn't know exactly what to do. So, you know, I just did parkour for a while. And then my ankle, I was getting healthier and I was like doing everything, like waking up early and like doing all these foam rolling exercises, stretching and doing all these little like weird band exercises. But it wasn't like, you know, I'd, I'd been to a PT and I'd been assessed and stuff, but it was like, it's hard to get a clear answer sometimes about exactly what's going on. Um, and so I think one of the challenges for recovering from an injury, especially if it's uh, like a long-term injury, is that you kind of you kind of just got to become an expert in the in the stuff that you're going to need to know. You, you need to be able to dialogue with your PT. Like you need to have enough knowledge that it's like you're able to say things in a language they can understand and that they can say things to you that might go over someone's head. Like you, you need more than just exercises. It's like a relationship you're going to build with someone because there's a process. You do something for a little while, you see what happens. If that doesn't work, you, tr you like adjust and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so... It took a while to sort of figure that out. And in Portland, it was going well, but it didn't go as well when I moved to Denver. And then eventually my ankle kind of gave out all over again. It was weird. It was like I went training one day and suddenly it was just weird. Yeah. And so I made this decision at that point. I was like, okay, I have health insurance. I've never got this thing imaged. Like I've never gotten an MRI or anything because they're so expensive. Yep, thousand bucks. Yeah, at least, you know. So I was like, I'm going to get an MRI. I'm going to like find out what's going on. Because I thought, you know, after some of that PT that I'd like mostly solved it. It was just a matter of like moving forward from there. I went and got an MRI, got results, found an orthopedic surgeon that I could trust, like did a little bit of research. And that guy basically looked at the image and turned to me and goes, you just need to, we just need to cut that thing open and fix it. <laughs> it's just like, it's just so messed up in there. You know, uh, like three of my ligaments were just like these long, big, thick, leathery things. Like it was just so mangled, you know, and like the pain and discomfort I was feeling at that moment in time is basically my ankle was just so unstable that it was like slooshing around like in there. It's just kind of like flopping around. Yeah. Um, and hearing that from him was a huge relief, actually, um, because for years I'd struggled with this feeling of like, what's wrong with me? You know, like, why can't I get better? You know, like I kind of felt like I just sucked. Like that was just sort of like the conclusion you come to eventually. You're just like, I just suck. That's what it is. Like there's nothing wrong with me. No one, because x-rays were never yielding anything. My, my, it looked, tissue problem. yeah, it looked fine, of course, you know, and a lot of the doctors that I went to, doctors don't necessarily have the same training that PTs do. So they don't understand like movement systems at all. 
Um, and so like, it's kind of frustrating. You're getting this feedback like, well, you look fine. Nothing looks wrong, you know, but you're like, but I, I hurt head to toe <laughs> all the time. So works. like something's wrong, you know? Yeah. And that was a relief. And, and I felt, you know, I was in a situation that made it possible to like follow through and like get surgery. I like, I basically just like, like, I think it was like three weeks after I got that, I was like basically going into surgery. Um, Dang. it was pretty quick. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of made a decision beforehand based on how I'd felt and all the PT I'd done that if he said like surgery was a good option, I would just take it because the PT I was working with at the time was like, oh, well, no, like maybe we can figure something out. And I didn't really like him and I didn't really feel like I was getting good results with him at all. And like, I didn't feel like he listened to me. And I just felt like, no, like I've, I've done a lot of work on this. Like it hasn't worked. Like if the problem is something that can be assessed or corrected surgically, you know, and, and for that surgery, it was like the success rate's really high, you know, yeah. and he was like a really, really good surgeon. How much did all that cost? Like at the end of the day? Well, you know, if I hadn't had insurance, um, it probably would have cost about $85,000. Um, something what? like that. Yeah. 80, $85,000. Yeah. It's a lot of money. Wow. That's the thing. It's like in America, in America. <laughs> um, and I think, I think international athletes don't understand sometimes that we live we live in kind of a different environment where like an injury is a really serious thing, not just physically, but like financially. Like if you get seriously injured in America and you don't have insurance, like you're just injured for life. That's kind of like the situation you're in. And so like, we think that every time we go out and train, I know I do. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I can't get fucked up because that bill is too high. <laughs> I don't have insurance right now. Yeah. So, uh, but with insurance, I think my copay was probably like, four thousand dollars so still it was really steep you know and i am not quite done paying it off i think i have like a little bit left to go but i have kind of like focused on paying that one back because it's just dumb and i don't want that debt hanging around it just feels stupid wow that's that's pretty wild that's that's definitely one thing that i'd like to explore in some other episode talking about the differences between being in a person a person in the United States versus a person in Europe because you know I've seen people be like yeah I just quit my job to just travel and I get like severance pay or stuff or whatever and you're just like that's not how it works here man yeah so, but not I don't want to don't want to get too derailed one thing that I thought was really interested is in, interesting is just how there have been so many benefits to you from having it like a more regimented job like a nine-to-five I feel like a lot of parkour people are very afraid of getting a nine to five job like that just because they're worried that it'll re reduce their amount of freedom to the point that they won't be able to train as hard as they want to. And I don't feel like that's necessarily a true problem that you run into. And so I guess one thing that I sort of want to get people to understand is that there is a benefit to having some regimentedness to your life by having some sort of job because then it provides like that structure provides economic stability it provides you healthcare a lot of times not always depends on the job but that those things can really make a huge difference in terms of your training and then also earlier we were talking and you talked about how you don't necessarily need to be training for a whole crazy amount of time in order to be making progress can you like talk about that a little bit yeah i mean one thing i would say is that i think parkour people in general are kind of driven by romantic impulses a lot of them and i appreciate that i love that about parkour 
I, <laughs> I do. But achieving specific goals usually requires a specific plan and it's going to require resources. And you have to do whatever, like, yes, maybe someone has made it on, on their romantic journey, but you can't guarantee that that can happen for you. What you can do is assess the, the tools that you have at your disposal, the resources you have at your disposal, and how you can use those to move toward a specific goal. If anything, that's the most parkour thing I've ever fucking heard because <laughs> that is what parkour is. You just have to reapply some of the logic to like finances. And yes, like getting a job will limit the amount of time you have. Make sure you train efficiently, you know? You can't like maybe your training sessions can't be you go out and you kind of hang out in the park with your friends for 5 hours. That's not really an effective training method anyway, just to start with. Like if you want specific results, you should organize your training around things that will get you those specific results. In general, I think what's happened to me because I've had to do balance these two things is that I've become just a more sort of like goal-oriented athlete in a way. And, and I train with those goals in mind. And the moment-to-moment -moment pleasure I get from training is a little lower, but my overall all sense of satisfaction is definitely higher in that like I feel myself getting better and I have a process that I can trust in um, and so I don't have to like make a day-by-day -day assessment of like am I making progress I think that's a very detrimental way of thinking about parkour because nothing gets better a little bit every day it's it's an ebbing and flowing and you have to know what you're doing what the process is so you have something to trust in so you don't have to feel bad about having a day that's not as good because yeah. um, they will happen. And they're actually kind of an important part of the thing as well is that you, if you're having a, a day that's not as good, it's probably because you were pushing yourself pretty hard a couple days ago. <laughs> you know, that's part of what happens is you push hard and your body takes a little time to recover from that and you go through some days that aren't as great. You should get out and move. It's important, but like you have to like calibrate what your expectations are around that a little bit. Just trust that eventually you'll be yeah, and trust on that the upward trajectory that you're moving on an upward trajectory as long as you kind of keep with what you're doing. And I think that's allowed me to train for less total time, but get the results that I want a little more. And I have a much healthier, happier relationship to parkour. I don't have days where I hate myself anymore. I just don't. I, I just don't have them. I don't know how I've managed it. I just, like, I have days where I feel a little discouraged, where it's hard to, like, get up and go out and do the stuff I have to do. And then I just go, like, yeah, but that's the process. And then I turn off my brain and I go do it. <laughs> go do it. Yeah. Do you think being injured helped you reach that point? Yeah. I think being injured is, like, a life-changing trauma, actually. And I think we don't give it enough credit that it, like, I think fundamentally sort of changed my personality. And at this point... I'm actually kind of grateful for everything that's happened to me. When it was happening, I didn't fucking like it at all. And the thing is, I think, A, I've been lucky having an aunt that I could go to is like not something everybody has. And I understand that. Like there are things that I have that other people don't have. And I'm really grateful for those things. But I also think that I'll give myself some credit where credit's due, which is that I made sure that I used those things in a way that would benefit me. Some people have those things and they don't use them, and they should. If you have resources, if you have privilege, take advantage of it and do something smart with it, you know? Like, you should use what you got, you know? 
I think that's a really good point because a lot of people, especially especially when it comes to money, we're really married to this idea of a meritocracy in the United States where everybody starts off at the exact same place and everything's fair. And that's just like not how I just like don't is. know what you're looking at if you think that. <laughs> like I don't know what you're looking at. <laughs> and so a lot of times people will feel like by acknowledging that they had certain privileges that we're taking away from them like any of the success that they had but that's not the case i guess a lot of times what i think about personally is like who am i to talk about money when i can live at home with my parents and have a comfortable life and have a pretty solid job when there are other people out there who are like in a much harder position and they're like forced to work in a more minimum wage type of situation and live out of their home like so they have to pay for rent and everything and so it makes like just the way that we talk about money in our culture and those confounding factors as well of privilege and people being feeling like it's taboo makes it really hard for people to talk about it and then also to ask for help which is part of the reason why I want to do this podcast in the first place just so that we as a parkour community can start talking about these issues and start asking each other for help and get more ideas out about what you can do regardless of your situation because some people will be in a, like, a, they might have had a harder deck of cards handed to them. But there are still things that you can do to sort of optimize your situation and s- eventually get you- yourself to a good position in life. And then there are other people who have a har- easier time, but there are still things that they can do to set themselves up well. And I think it's just really important to start talking about that because there are tons of people out there who make a butt-ton of money and they're still living paycheck to paycheck because... They don't talk about money with anybody, and they've just sort of fallen into the cultural norm of keeping up with the Joneses and spending pretty much all the money that you have and not really investing or saving well. And so I just don't really want to, like, be 50 and, like, look around at all my parkour friends and be like, guys, like, no, <laughs> it was supposed to be better than this. We, we were counterculture. We were supposed to escape the gravity of what this stuff right here where we're all sort of still struggling you know yeah yeah and i just don't want to worry about my friends sort of falling into that situation which is why we're here having this conversation sure um speaking of these things and going against the normal grain i thought it was really interesting to see you living the van life was it two or three years ago just i don't know you you feel like you started how long ago did you start van life stuff um I would say that it, it's a lie that I've done any van life stuff. Actually. Oh, really? I, that's what I would say. I would oh. say I have yet to do it. Okay. Um, so it's like, a, this is like where I identify with the like romantic parkour thing, which is that I just want to do it. Like, it's just been something I've dreamed about for a long time. I just thought like, it would be really fun to like travel and live in my van. And like, I've always been like a minimalist sort of person. So it's like not too, like it doesn't stress me out or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I uh, bought a van probably about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. And that was a big investment, just buying it. I had to take out an auto loan, which I've definitely not paid back. Um, That's like a 10-year payment plan. I'm like, whatever. (laughs) Um, But I found a cheap one. It was like about four grand, I think, for my van. Low miles, good deal, Mm -hmm. really good deal. Um, And then I built it out toward the beginning of last summer. I saved up a little bit of money, but it kind of did that a little bit like, you know, this last year, like money wise, I've been a little more reckless, a little more like, 
fuck it. Like, let's fucking see what I can do. Um, I feel like I have a little bit of a safety net with my aunt and uncle. Like, I feel like, oh, if it really, really gets fucked, I can always go back there for just a little bit and, like, get my shit together. And, like, my resume is, like, looking all right. Like, now I've worked at this political nonprofit, and, and currently I work at, a like, an advertising agency. So it looks like, you know, I'm making progress from, like, an employer's perspective. Um, I really only took this job here because I really, really needed a job. It wasn't, like, an attempt to move up in the world at all. <laughs> what happened was I quit. I moved into my van. I did, like, a crazy summer trip and then got to Portland and was like, oh, my God, I have no money. I'm unemployed. I, like, do, I like left all of my shit in Colorado with Nick. I left, like, all my plates, like, everything. Like, I left a squat rack. Like, everything I'd ever bought. <laughs> like, I just gave it to Nick. I was just like, Thanks, dang bro. it! <laughs> Um, and so I was a little bit like, wow, what have I done? Um, but I think it was, it was a, an, a valuable, um, experience in that what I was trying to do was in, invest resources in specifically parkour, like as a, as like a potential career. Mm-hmm. And I needed to go and do this project, do film something, take time off, really, really invest some energy and time in it. And ultimately I ran out of money but I did accomplish what I was trying to do and I had enough safety that I could kind of pull it off. Um, and then afterwards I was able to sort of land back on my feet in a, it was a calculated risk. Ultimately, it wasn't like completely reckless. It was something that I did knowing like, okay, this, you know, might not work out exactly how I want it to, but it's a risk I want to take. Cause I think the payoff could be really good. And if it doesn't work out the way I want it to, I think I'll still end up like not dead. Yeah. Um, but I really was only in the van for like a month and a half maybe. Mm-hmm. So it was like a summer vacation like a really long exciting fun adventure um but i think van life is different because van life is figuring out a way to do a sustained sort of living model in a van which is sort of the next step for me now Mm -hmm. is figuring out how to get to there um and sort of transitioning from living in an apartment you know where i'm paying like six seven hundred dollars a month for rent to a situation where i'm living in the van but still have some kind of income that allows me to um, do the things I want to do in the van. Because just living in a van and having a job isn't really what I'm going for. I want to live in the van and I want to travel. And that means figuring out sort of a new um, solution for, yeah, for money. More remote, yeah. remote employment option. But you do think that van life would be like a viable option for a lot of people? I think the thing about van life is that it is a big upfront investment. Mm-hmm. And unless you have those things already it's probably not the easiest option. Um, I think it's, you know, it's very romantic um, and kind of cool as an idea, but unless you just happen to own a van, it's not actually a great solution. Living out of your car, if you have one, like you could do that, you know, those are things you can do. Van life in the way that I'm pursuing it is is in and of itself a costly thing. Yeah. Um, And so if it's something you want to do, just take that into consideration that like doing it in a fun, comfortable ways is going to be something that like is going to take some time to figure out. Like I've been kind of working toward that for like six years almost. Like it was something I I started thinking about while I was in college, you know? Mm -hmm. And so like there's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of things you have to buy and like, you know, then figuring out the employment thing. It's just a lot. I I, I hope it'll end up being fun, but I'm also aware that it could be terrible. Like my van was leaking and got towed and it cost $700 to get it back. And then I had to like dry it out. There's mold in there. And now I have to move it into a garage where I'm paying $300 a month. 
like that's not cheap if you didn't have a little bit of money and you weren't like in a situation where you had money coming in like that um that probably would have just been the end of my van you know i would have just lost it um so there you know it could it can be bad things can things can get worse <laughs> so just always remember like it could get bad yeah. and i'm lucky too that my girlfriend's mom has some money that definitely does help so she can always help out when things get like fucked up you know like that's like a fuck up what happened there like a whole bunch of expenses totally unplanned for and she was able to get the van out for us right uh, okay. you know yeah that makes a huge difference and that makes a huge difference like yeah. And like my dad could maybe do something like that once in a while, mm-hmm. um, but it's also awkward to ask my dad for money. It's very uncomfortable. He's it's like a little weird thing for him, and he kind of makes me feel guilty about it. So it's something I really try and avoid. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't have money saved, and I think that that's one of my big mistakes is that I don't really save any money. I tend to like get money and sort of reinvest it into the things that I'm doing. Um, to try and move those forward as fast as I can. But it means that there's very little room for error and that I don't have a lot of contingencies. Do you plan on changing that at all? Um, I think moving into the van is going to require that I just have money saved because I could need emergency repairs. I could end up needing a tow. Like there's just things that could suddenly cost kind of exorbitant amounts of money for someone who's sort of being a vagabond. Yes. Um, And so... I think I'm going to need to make sure I have money saved before I leave. And that's sort of part of the plan is trying to figure out like, you know, how to pay off more of my debt and then get some money saved and sort of figure out a system for getting, uh, for having income while I'm on the road. Um, and that's all still a work in progress, you know? Yeah. Do you track your expenses at all? I did for a long time. Um, I used, uh, something called YNAB, which is you need a, you need a budget. It's great. Uh, it's like a like for a period of time it was like a one time payment of like fifty bucks or something, mm-hmm. um, and it's really good if you don't have like a lot of budgeting software is built around this idea that you have a salary, which is just like not the case for like most millennials <laughs> at all. You know, it's like oh I kind of have a job but I don't know when I work and I don't know how much I'm gonna make, um, and so it's really good for like that or a freelancer or someone who's got this like really sort of like ever changing sort of financial landscape. Yeah. I and I found it really helpful. I think it switched to a subscription, like yeah. seven bucks a month type of thing. Yeah. I'd totally be wrong about that. I think it did too. But was it helpful in terms of figuring out how much money you were spending and oh I mean Yeah. I literally bailed on using it this summer when I kind of was just like, let's go all in. Um and I haven't really picked it back up. So I don't I also don't know exactly how much I spent this summer, which is kind of weird. Like to not just like not know exactly how that money like disappeared um but yeah it was definitely really helpful i would say it was critical for getting to where i was at that point in time um and i just felt like going kind of balls to the wall and taking some risks um i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing i just think you need to be calculated when you do stuff like that and like when i move back into the when i eventually move into the van i think i'm gonna have gotten all that reorganized and refunctioning so that I can track my expenses really clearly in the van when I have, when I'm working on probably fairly limited resources. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought it was super helpful. It was really helpful for just figuring out like, oh wow, I spend like X amount of money on something, something, you know, like you just don't know sometimes like where your money is going. You know, yeah. you suddenly find out you're spending like $300 a month on Chipotle and you're like, <laughs> that seems stupid. Like I could probably not do that, you know, and like, 
When I was like first in Portland and I was like really, really broke, I went and got on food stamps, um, which if you're broke enough to do, I would totally recommend. It's, it's lit. I know the government's shut down currently, but hopefully it's running again. It was awesome. I got $150 a month in just food benefits and I was able to do every month on $150 worth of food. Really? Yeah. Wow. I was just eating really boring. Really boring. Yeah. You got to eat super boring to do it, but like it worked for a while. That's fast. Like, what type of boring food were you eating on food stamps? I was eating like, like at least one meal a day was like rice and lentils with potatoes and onions and a fried egg on top, and it was like you could eat like a small amount and it was like super super dense, <laughs> so you could just operate on that like almost all day, and then like oatmeal. It was very like kind of carb heavy yeah. um, eating, but. I was also like, you know, cause I'm, I was interested in like being healthy. So I was trying to figure out ways to like incorporate more protein into it. And like oats are like, if you're going to eat a grain, they're kind of high in protein. Lentils are high in protein. So it was, it was working. It was boring. I will admit I only did it for one month. And after that, I was like, I'm going to spend some of my own money on food <laughs> as well, because <laughs> this is, did you have like proper spices and seasoning and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. It's still boring that way. It's just repetitive. It's just. Yeah. Like, I can do it, and I could do it from my whole life, I think, if I had to. But it's like, you live in a world where there's just, like, so much flavor and so many <laughs> options. It's, like, hard to resist it, Yeah. you know, especially when it's so accessible, you know? Like, we live at a point in time where it's, like, you can basically push a button on your phone and have food from any restaurant show up at your house. Mm -hmm. So it's hard not to just be like, I kind of want tacos, you know? Like, Let's go. Yeah. All right, so I guess we're getting close to the end. So I'm sort of wondering... What's the trajectory that you're seeing for yourself in terms of parkour? Like, I remember you were talking about, like, maybe pursuing some sponsors, and then also financially overall. So, I like to keep my trajectory loose. That's, like, my strategy in life. So far, it seems to be working. If it really backfires, I'll reassess. But I think I have, like, a multiple trajectory is sort of running simultaneously, and I'm, like, always doing a little bit for each of them, and as one moves forward, I start to invest more in that one. But... I could just stay at the job that I have. I like it. Um, I think that they, I could grow there and it could really kind of be a career um, and I could do parkour and just enjoy that. That's like an option that I totally have on the table. It's not the one I want, but it's the one that's smart. Mm -hmm. um, never, been, never been one for the smart option when there's a risky one that's way cooler. Always been into that. Hence the parkour <laughs> thing. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. Um, what I really want to do is live in my van and travel and train and make cool content. I really enjoy making the parkour content I make and I can see that the people who enjoy it really enjoy it. And that's kind of an exciting thing. And I'm starting to understand that relationship that people talk about, like, oh, my followers are so important to me. Like, I hate it. But the truth is like, they kind of are. Like the people who really like my stuff, it means a lot to me because they are the kind of people who make it possible to potentially pursue that in a more full-time capacity, which is a real opportunity in the world we live in because there's just a billion brands. Like there's a new brand being made every day and there's people with money and they don't know what to do with it. And so if you can convince one of them that you're a worthwhile investment and you can help them grow their money, they'll, they'll probably be willing to do it. And so that's something I'm thinking about and I'm not aiming for a specific brand. I think one thing people in parkour do is they aim for a brand. I think you gotta create a big list, like a, as big as you can. I've spent like a month basically just going down rabbit holes on both Instagram and Google, like looking for brands 
and trying to figure out how who I am and who I present myself as on social media fits into their image, right? Because that's a big thing. If your personal brand aligns with the brand, that in and of itself can be a pretty strong selling point. Um, and I think growing a sort of a strategy for like, how are you going to make content? How are you going to maintain making content? Like, what's your workflow? How do you organize all this? Because I have, it took me, that took me a while to figure out in and of itself. Like I, I now have like a very specific sort of workflow that I follow, sort of a way that I, you know, organize my footage and folders. And that leads to how I organize it in my projects, which leads to sort of a convenient way for me to like keep revisiting the same project over and over again and being able to create a little bit every day. Like I don't just make content the day that I do the thing, um, which I think is a, it seems to work for some people. It's very hard for me because life just happens and I just don't want to train for a week. And so I have like a backlog of content. I think that's like a smart thing. If you want to pursue that kind of thing, you should, you know, work on a week delay. Sometimes you do something cool and there's this feeling of pressure of like, if I don't put it out right now, like it won't be cool anymore and no one will care. Um, just trust that like, you know, if you're, if you think you're pretty good at what you're doing, you'll probably still seem pretty good in a month. It's okay. Consistency is more important, you know, yeah. than anything else. So I'm pursuing those things and I have my hopes up, but I just know that it's a crapshoot a little bit. Not everybody gets to live their dream life. It's just the truth. And I'm happy with my contingency plans at the moment. They're pretty good. Um, your bail options are looking good. My bail options are looking good. I've set them up well. I really think about life as parkour. I really do. So the bails are looking nice, but what I'm aiming for is I'm hoping I can pull it off. And I feel like it's a calculated risk and, and I kind of know what I'm doing. And I think I should be able to get it to work for a little while, you know? And I don't, I don't see parkour as like a lifelong career option. And I don't think anyone should. Not at this moment in time. I just don't think that that's realistic. I think... If you want to do parkour professionally, it might be really cool to do for two to five years, but you need to figure out where it goes from there because A, you'll probably get a little tired of the grind that is doing it professionally because I think we think those people are all having a good time all the time, but it's definitely hard work. Like they're pumping out videos like every week. They have to film, they have to train, they just have to. And like, yeah, it's fun, but it's also work. and. You know, it's something you probably can't sustain forever. Uh, your body's going to get tired of pushing to that degree, you know. Uh, do you want to become a coach afterwards? Do you want to open a gym? These are things that you should start sort of thinking about and building into that plan. Like, you can use becoming a professional parkour athlete as a way to move to something else. It gives you opportunities. It can open up things for you. And it gives you a level of credibility, I think. Also, uh, those social media numbers, as much as they kind of don't mean anything, they mean a lot. <laughs> you know, in terms of like opportunities and uh, an ability to get funding to do things that you have in your mind. True, true. All right, so Milo, tell us about any sort of project that you have coming up and how we can help support you on that. Oh, lit. I get to plug myself. Oh, yeah. Tell us your social media stuff while you're at it, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm Endurance Parkour on Instagram. Actually, that's my name everywhere now. Um, I don't know how I managed to snag that shit before anyone else got it, but I did. <laughs> I saw that shit was free on Instagram. I was like, that is mine. <laughs> that is a nice handle. And yeah, I do the things I'm doing. I'm trying to do long, long lines. I'm trying to think about parkour as a, as a distance sport, as a, as a, as sort of my thing and my approach to it. Um, and so the long-term goal is to do this mile long parkour line. It's like 
relatively high technical level. Um, I think I'm a ways from doing that, but I think uh, the process of getting there is probably going to be kind of interesting to watch, and I'm trying to document that in a series of, of sort of short-form documentaries that I'll be releasing on Vimeo. Um, but I think the best place to follow me is probably Instagram, and you'll get directed toward that stuff over time. Perfect. All right, man. It has been a pleasure, and I can't wait to talk to you again, do some more interviewing with you for Funding the Jump, and yeah, it was great. Yeah, this was super fun. I've also never really thought about how much my financial planning has been interrelated into yeah. the trajectory, and it was interesting to think about for a second. I was I mean, like, damn. <laughs> yeah, money, unfortunately, is really important, so we sort of have to... Figure out how to use it. If you figure out how to use it, then it makes life a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right now, as a culture of parkour people, we just sort of anti-money. But if we sort of, in my opinion, if we start changing our opinions of money and how we think of it as as it relates to us, then I think it could make our lives a lot easier. Yeah. I love that anti-money sentiment. Don't lose it. Don't fetishize what money is, you know? Remember, like, it's just a resource to get things done. Yeah. And and if you can think about it that way, then you can embrace money. And I actually think it's possible. I know this is totally ridiculous, but I think the parkour community has like an interesting relationship to just reality. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do. I And it's unique. I haven't quite met anyone who sees the world the way that other people who do parkour seem to see the world anywhere else. And if we could just get organized, I think we could make some cool shit happen. Not just for our sport, but in general, for helping people see reality in a slightly different way, in a way that's more grounded in what reality actually is. Because we're very deeply grounded in our bodies and their relationship to the environment. And when you think about it, that's the most real thing that we can sort of verifiably say is happening, you know? This is true. And it's, I think if everyone could be that grounded in their, in their, in their bodies, in their minds, physiologically, we could make the world a little bit better. Yeah, I think it would make a pretty solid difference yeah yeah all right that concludes another episode of funding the jump thank you so much for listening to this episode with milo all the way through and if this episode was useful to you please share it with a friend until next time keep training and keep funding the jump